Welcome back to the American Sheep Industry Association's Research Update Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Thorne. We just wrapped up another ASI convention in San Diego, and it was a great couple of days discussing the current status, the challenges, and the opportunities for the sheep industry in the United States. One of the hot topics at this meeting, and really something that has been generating excitement over pretty recent history, has been the emergence of genomic technologies, and specifically those that are really geared to benefit the American sheep producer. One aspect of how this technology is being integrated into modern sheep breeding is through genomically enhanced estimated breeding values, or GEBVs. The National Sheep Improvement Program, NSIP for short, has offered estimated breeding values to progressive producers here in the U.S. for a while, but in the last few months, they have adopted GEBVs, starting with one of its most popular breeds, the Katahdin. Joining me today are two gentlemen who have played central roles in helping NSIP take this next step. And lucky for us, they have agreed to take a little time to help us all understand a little bit more clearly what genomically enhanced breeding values are and how they will be utilized now and into the future. I'd like to welcome to the podcast Lynn Farmeyer, Chairman of the Board of Directors for NSIP and a successful Katahdin producer himself, and also Dr. Ron Lewis, a professor of animal breeding and genomics at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and the chair of the NSIP Technical Committee. Thanks to the both of you for being here with us today. Thanks, Jake. Yeah, thanks. Looking forward to this. Sure. Now, I introduced you by your current titles, uh, but in reality, you both have a, a long history of being active leaders in our industry. And, and our listeners, we'd love to hear a little bit more about your backgrounds and just how you came to be in your current roles and, and positions today. So, Lynn, if you'd like to, to start and, and tell us a, a little bit more about your background, please. Yeah, thanks, Jake. Um, well, I'm, I guess I'm a little interesting. Um, at least, you know, when we're at ASI, um, boy, there's some long history of family uh, involvement with ASI. And and I'm actually a first generation shepherd. I live uh, near Kansas City, Missouri, uh, along the Missouri River. And we, um, my wife and I bought our first sheep. Um, and actually this, I live on a farm that's been the family now for over 125 years. And to the best of my knowledge, uh, 24 years ago when Donna and I bought 12 registered Katahdinas, those were the first sheep that had ever been on this land. And so um, um, fell in love with the, the sheep, fell in love with the people that are associated with the industry. And I've been active on the Missouri uh, sheep producers, um, board of directors, and then now ASI and NSIP. But um we farm about 1,700 acres of corn, soybeans, and wheat, and then we also have about 150 uh, ewe, uh, Katahdin ewes, and we sell for meat, lambs, and also for um, breeding stock. Okay, great. How about you, Dr. Lewis? Yes, uh, my background is a little bit different than that. I actually grew up in a small beach community, if you might imagine, in California. And my first real livestock involvement was with a rake, in small pens trying to stay out of the way of horses. Hmm. And during high school, I spent a fair bit of time uh, working in that setting around a few livestock animals, sheep and beef. But sort of my real engagement with sheep came when I was at university, my, uh, which was at UC Davis, where luckily for me, I became the student shepherd at the sheep unit. And so that 
allowed me to eat, which was a good thing, but perhaps even more so to uh, really get engaged with what sheep production was all about. And then with some kind mentors, had the opportunity to build on that and spend some years actually where you're at, Jake, in Texas at San Angelo as a, my first proper job out of university. I uh, spent some time in Virginia working on another degree with Dave Notter, who many would, of you would know about, and then had a chance to spend quite a few years abroad, a couple of years in Australia and about a decade in Scotland. And most important is I met my dear wife who still puts up with me. And then we shifted uh, back to the US, oh, probably 15 years ago, back to my alma mater at Virginia Tech. Again, joined Dave Notter. Uh, mentorship and then uh, ended up coming here to the University of Nebraska-Lincoln oh, about eight years ago with a, an opportunity. Nearly all of my career has been around working with small ruminants, whether it be sheep or goats, clearly always with a genetics emphasis. And perhaps most important to all of that, a lot of it in, involved engaging with producers. And so I learned a tremendous amount in different parts of the world from people who were actually utilizing kinds of ideas we developed. So I've been very fortunate. Great. And the sheep industry is, is really lucky to have both of your leadership. And, and thank you again for being here. Uh, so Dr. Lewis, we're going to get things kicked off with you. Uh, I'd like to just start at, at square one, basically. What is an estimated breeding value? And what does an EBV tell us about the genetics of a sheep? Great question, Jake. Well, an EBV, as we call it, has that E up front, which means it's an estimate. Key, so right? Very key. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because there's, as in anything, when you estimate it, there's estimate it, there's a bit of error around it. So what an estimated breeding value does is it takes as much that as we know about an animal, its parentage, its cohorts, its progeny, and combine that in a way to try to figure out its genetic merit for traits of interest. So it's really a technology to take what we measure, whether it's performance or pedigree or genomics for that matter, combine it in an effective way to do our best job of predicting, estimating what an animal's merit is. And its value is that it gets away from perhaps allowing some of our husbandry and management conditions in a way to impact or even bias how we compare our animals genetically because it removes those components of how an animal performs to really focus in on those aspects that make it genetically better or worse than an alternative animal. But it is an estimate. The more we know, the better the estimate is. Sure. Now, Lynn, you have, have utilized this technology for quite some time. And, and so I'd really like to hear your perspective on, on how EBVs can be used in, in sheep breeding. Yeah, well, Jake, I think maybe the question before that is to, uh, the, the shepherd has to know what his goals are for their flock. Um, you know, we're not trying to maximize every trait. We're, we're trying to move our individual flock in the direction that we need it to go or that we think we need it to go. And by using EBVs, we can fine tune um, 
you know, we can fine tune some traits. Maybe there's some traits we want to really, we want to maximize and we can just dial that in as, as fast as we can genetically. And like Dr. Lewis said, you know, there's, there's a management component to this too. I've, sure. I've made the comment before that if you've selected for increased number of lambs weaned for 20 years using estimated breeding values and you're not seeing any improvements, then maybe it's a management problem. It's probably not a genetic problem. But if you've got good management and you're pretty confident that you're doing everything right, but you want more twins uh, than what you currently have, well then let's find breeding stock that rank high in number of lambs weaned so we can move you in that direction. Um, you know, different, every different environment is going to have a different set of goals. Um, you may not want to maximize weaning weights. You may not want to maximize um, um, maternal weaning weights or um, used to call that milk. But, you know, we, we're trying to move the, we're trying to select the correct animals to move our flocks in the direction that we think is best for our flock and for our goals. Okay. Yeah. And, and how about, you know, from your perspective, having used EBVs in your breeding decisions for a while, you know, what are the, the long-term benefits that you've, you've experienced or what a producer who focuses on a particular EBV, what can they realistically expect after four or five, 10 generations of, of using this type of technology? There's, um, yeah, we, we've looked at that, uh, within all the breeds that participate in NSIP and, you know, for the, like the suffix, they can, they've seen tremendous increases in weaning weight and post weaning weight gain. Um, in the Katahdin's, my personal flock, you know, we can really increase the amount of parasite resistance that we, that we're selecting for. And um, again, within, even just within the Katahdin breed, some flocks select for that harder than others. And if you look at like a 10 year graph, they can, they can move um, their, you know, the selection pressure can move the the outcomes that they're seeing in their flock quite uh, drastically. Okay. And Jake, if I may just add to that, because it's yeah, pretty nicely sure. said, you know, what the beauty of using these tools are, as Lynn has nicely explained, is they're cumulative. And so you see gains year in and year out. And so, uh, again, as Lynn nicely said, we need to think about where we want to go to in the future. So we use genetics uh, in a medium to long-term sense because that cumulative benefit gives us that opportunity to move in a, a direction that meets our production goals. And that isn't always true when we're trying to affect things by husbandry or management, which may vary much more regularly. So that cumulative and permanent effect of utilizing breeding values is part of their beauty. That's how they can be so effectively implemented. Sure. Okay. And so just so I'm understanding, an, an EBV is a number, uh, and it's a number that reflects genetic merit or genetic value for a particular trait, correct? Correct. Yes. Okay. And, and so I guess my next question is, and particularly going back to your point about this being an estimated breeding value, Dr. Lewis, how accurate is that number or that prediction? And what are the factors that play into that accuracy portion of it? Right. 
Well, the accuracy was actually going to vary with the trait that we are interested in. So if we think about the things that may be important, we tend to categorize them into groups. So we're worried about things uh, that affect the way an animal grows and its carcass. Those tend to be what we call medium, maybe leaning towards more highly heritable. And what that means is what we see, how an animal themselves perform, tells us a fair bit about their true breeding value. So for traits like that, they tend to be more accurately evaluated. Our, our EBVs are a better portrayal of an animal's true genetic merit. When we move to traits like those that affect fitness and reproduction, they tend to be more lowly heritable. So we learn less from the way an animal actually performs on a day about their genetic merit. So the accuracy of the EBV will tend to be lower for those kinds of traits. So what becomes really important in our programs is to think about the kind of traits we have and how much information we can actually accumulate to do a better job of estimating those breeding values. The more we know about an animal, the more we know about its relatives, its progeny, its ancestors, we incorporate that to do a better job in estimating its breeding value. And that becomes really important when we think about these maternal traits, like reproductive rate. We need to collect a lot of information on females in order to do a good job of evaluating them. And we'll probably come to this a bit later. That's where genomics proves to be extremely valuable because it can help us improve the accuracy of the estimate. Yeah. So the accuracy is, is really a critical element to telling just how effective these EBVs are. And so with that, and, and to follow up on that last statement you just made there, Dr. Lewis, how does genomic technology differ from our, our traditional quantitative genetics, which make up estimated breeding value estimates? And how can those two types of technology, genomics and quantitative genetics, how are they blended together to create a, a genomically enhanced breeding value? Well, the way I look at it, Jake, is that rather than perhaps being different, they're sort of part of a complementary blend, if I may. Sure. I've been uh, mentioning it perhaps too many times that it's all about how much we know, how much information that we have. And information can come from all kinds of sources. It comes from how an animal itself produces, how many lambs it generates, and how many lambs its mother will tend to produce, or its daughters will tend to produce. What genomic data does is it gives us another full repertoire of information about that animal that we can also include when we try to evaluate its genetic potential, staying with the same example, for, being, for litter size. And so the way that is blended uh, involves a fair bit of computation, if I may, sure, sure. But, but it really is a complement, the genomics is a complementary bit of information up and above what we have, have currently and historically have done. And so it's really a blending of additional bits of inf information in the most effective way that we can. That information from genomics happens to be come, coming from a marker, what we refer to as single nucleotide polymorphisms, that are 
basically road maps, locations on our genomic map of sheep that we can then use to try to link particular information at those location to actual attributes of how an animal performs. And that just gives us more information to use to combine together to more accurately estimate breeding values. Okay, so is accuracy the, the predominant benefit? Are there other benefits uh, of, of having GEBV over a, a traditional EBV calculation? And, you know, in a, in a perfect scenario, I know this is all, uh, you know, depends, but in a perfect scenario, just how much of a benefit is our GEBVs over a traditional breeding value? Um, I'll start that. I'm sure Lynn may want to. Yeah, I'd like to have both your perspective on this. Um, it is really all about accuracy when we think about GEBVs. Sure. And that's the the first thing that I think about. And we see benefits, you know, that are depending on the trait, that can be 30 to 40% improvements in accuracy wow. based on including that genomic information. So accuracy is the first step, but where the real importance comes in is that by doing a more accurate job of evaluating our animals, we can do a better job of taking selection decisions when they're young. Right. So if yeah. you think a young ram lamb, they have no daughters on the ground. We really don't have a lot of information on its ability to improve the reproductive rate in our flock. But if we can still predict estimated breeding value well when it is young, we do a better job of selecting males before they've had the opportunity to produce progeny in our decision-making. So accuracy is the first step, but the benefit is it allows us to do a better job of taking selection decisions in younger animals. That's where we see uh, part of that uh, advantage of including that genomic information. Sure. And Lynn, as a producer that's hopefully going to be taking advantage of, of GEBVs, you know, how, how does it feel like it's going to be beneficial to you? Or how do you see the, the benefits playing out in, uh, in your flock or for other NSIP producers? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think when we first started talking about this in the industry, there were some people that just thought that a GEBV would be a bigger number. Yeah. And it, it's not. It, it's a more um, more accurate or a more precise number. And so, you know, again, like Dr. Lewis said, and especially on the maternal traits or the hard to measure traits, um, if we can have more accurate information when we're out in that culling pen, you know, making keep cull decisions, um, that will speed up, you know, our genetic progress. And so, um, you know, for the maternal breeds, especially, I think uh, the maternal traits, um, it, it's going to be a big deal in your uh, in a shepherd's uh, selection criteria. We can talk about this in a little bit, Jake, or whatever, and I don't want to get real deep in the weeds, but Dr. Lewis did a lot of work this past summer and fall analyzing the Katahdin data before and after the genomic data was added to uh, his reference value mm -hmm. or his reference population. And, um, you know, you can graphically see the increase in the accuracy of these EBVs. Some EBVs went up uh, in numerical terms and some went down, but 
I'd rather know that before I want to know what the, the before you've bred him for five years. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, you want to know that before you breed and not after. And so uh, that's the power of adding all this genomic information. Sure. Okay. And part of that, just to add to Lynn's comment about making the right decisions early on, where we saw the biggest advantage of adding genomics were to those animals that we knew very little about in the first place. Yep. Yep. Okay. Once they're really well tested, if I may, genomics doesn't offer a lot more because we're already doing a good job of evaluating them. It's when we don't know very much where these tools are are most of the, of most value. Sure. Now, GEBVs, they're not specific to sheep uh, production or, or sheep producers. Uh, are there, have there examples or are there examples of this technology in, in other livestock species and, and how they've been in the, benefited those industries? And both of you can, can definitely weigh in on this. Dr. Lewis, if you want to start, though. Absolutely. I mean, the probably the classic example is in dairy cattle. Uh, if you think about historically, if you were trying to figure out if a bull was any good at producing daughters that fit into a, a milking facility. You had to kind of wait until those daughters grew up and produced milk themselves and they were evaluated. With the amount of genomic testing going on in the dairy industry, they're actually taking decisions on what bull calves to keep when they're still in utero, before they're born. And that's being based on the utility from the accumulation of genomic information uh, that they have accumulated. Now, important to say, and I wanna be clear on this, you're still measuring milk production in dairy cows, and that will always be needed. Sure. That will never stop, because you can't use the genomic information if you don't relate it to something real about how animals perform. But with the technology, they're able to take full advantage of the lactation records on ancestors of these, you know, yet to be born bulls to help them take decisions early in life. And it is, has huge impact on the ability to make good decisions early on. And in beef cattle and our other industries, they're seeing these same kind of benefits for the more difficult traits to record of 30, 40% improvements in accuracy uh, in particularly in younger animals. And that's good. That's just sure. something good for all of us. Sure. Now, Lynn, would it be fair to say that this type of technology has is even impacted your farming business? Uh, this isn't a, even an animal-specific technology. Uh, breeding can apply to, to plants and, and crops, and and I know you've got a diversified operation. Uh, you know, this probably has benefited you in more ways than one. I'm sure it has. You know. Um major seed companies don't tell me about expected what they, <laughs> they don't lay out their formula for you no they don't but yeah it, this is technology this this is actually statistical models that were developed i guess back in the 50s if my understanding is correct and so it, it's proven um to work um not only in livestock um uh, but yeah, in plant breeding, and, and there's other instances where these statistical models are being used outside of agriculture. So, you know, I think we can be confident that um, it works. And now that we can add the genomic data into it, you know, I mean, we're, um, 
and sheep were collecting uh, 50,000 of these uh, SNP markers per animal. And I mean, that's a, you know, that's a lot of data. Um, when I think about, you know, a spreadsheet, you know, maybe I'm collecting weights and some carcass data, some fecal data or whatever. I'm only filling up a few columns on that spreadsheet. And now I'm adding 50,000 more columns of data. And so uh, that's, that's really a pretty powerful statement, I think, when you think about um, the power of the technology and how, um, you know, how we can have confidence on it here at the farm. Okay, Lynn, I think you're headed down this road. And so I'm, I'm going to ask you this, you know, for calculating uh, a GEBV, what is the gene typing information that is necessary? You referenced 50,000, but can you just expand on that just a little bit and, and how uh, or what is required from NSI, NSIP's perspective to eventually go forward with GEBVs? Yep. Okay. So if I have, and uh, okay, I'm, I, I, there's a, there's a website, the nsip.org website, uh, under resources, uh, there's a, a, a section that talks about EBVs, and then there's another section that talks about GEBVs. And so that would be a follow-up website that people could go to for more information. But um, number one, we're not sampling, um, we're not taking tissue tests on every single animal because it's expensive and, and we need to say that up front. Um, NSIP is charging uh, roughly $30 uh, an animal plus it's going to take the producer an another two or three dollars to um, the, to collect the sample and we're using a tissue sampling unit from Allflex. Uh, cattle producers would be real familiar with it and it actually is taking a, uh, a little chunk of skin and uh, tissue and putting it in a vial where it's preserved and then we're sending it to a lab. And um, so there's actually, we've developed some strategy documents with Dr. Lewis to kind of help producers understand how many different animals or which animals um, to, to sample and uh, to try to keep the costs down. But that's uh, that tissue samples, what's actually analyzed, the DNA is extracted from it and then that's what's being um, put into the that those 50,000 SNPs we talk about is what's put into the calculation. It comes from that tissue sample. And so it takes a little bit of time. There's a financial investment. But um, if you're if you're targeted to which animals you're you're targeting to select, um, you know, it I think the payback is is, uh, you know, something that can be realized in a. Uh, and period of time. Okay. And Dr. Lewis, I'm going to ask you to jump in here. You know, what, what is the significance of 50,000 markers and, and why is that important for this calculation? Good, good, good follow-up. And to avoid causing fear in the hearts of humanity, <laughs> the beauty of the technology is we're not sending people 50,000 bits of information that okay. they need to, to consider. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that. Uh, it, it, it scares me when I get it. I'll just put it that way. So really what people end up seeing when they get the GEBVs is what they historically have seen. It's an estimated breeding value. They get a prediction of the animal's merit for whatever trait they're interested in. But in the background of that calculation, we are including all of those 
50,000 genetic markers, basically to do a more accurate job of prediction. And there's really four bits of information that go into that. Um, the first would be what we learn from those 50,000 bits of information. So we look at how those markers individually tell us just a little bit more about the genetic merit of an animal for a trait of interest. We use their performance data on them and anyone that's related to them. We use our historic pedigree information because relationships among animals matter. And we augment the historic pedigree with what we call the genomic relationship matrix. So that just does a better job of really looking at relationships up and above the pedigree. And a good illustration of that, if you have, say, a full sib set of lambs that hit the ground and they're not recorded, we know nothing about them. If we're evaluating them just based on pedigree, as far as we know, they're the same thing. They're the same thing. We can't yeah. delineate them genetically. We know who their parents are. We may know who relatives are. But as far as we know, we're, we're, they're assumed to be uh, related in a very specific way. They're, they have yeah. half of their genes in common, and we don't have a clue which half, but we have to assume that. The beauty of genomic relationships is we can actually delineate specifically how many genes do they share. Mm -hmm. And that's a powerful tool, particularly in sheep, where we're getting multiple lambs being born. We can do a better job right at that point in time of birth of using the genomic relationships to delineate them. So it's those four bits that we're able to combine to give people a better breeding value using the genomic information. Okay. And so combining both your answers there, Lynn, you talked about producers are going to take a, a TSU, a little ear punch. They're going to send it in uh, at the lab. The D-Day is going to be pulled out, going to be ran on this 50K platform, uh, added into the, the EBV calculation like you talked about, Dr. Lewis. On the output end of that, Lynn, is there other information that's going to be available from that DNA evaluation or is it just uh, a corrected breeding value? No, thanks, Jake. That's a great point. And there are two more pieces of or types of information that come back. And number one is a parentage um, evaluation. If, um, now of course, in any parentage situation, you got to sample the parents. Okay. So if, especially all herd sires probably should be, uh, should have a TSU pulled on them. So I can now verify whether or not ram lamb number one was sired by my herd sire A or herd sire B. And, um, and so I think parentage is very important. And then oftentimes we can also verify the, the dam of that lamb. And, you know, just to be honest, uh, there are some differences um, with among breeders about how accurate perhaps their records are or how accurate their uh, pairing lambs up uh, in jugs. Um, so far within the Katahdin breed, we there's some breeders that have about a 0% error and, and there's others that are up 
maybe around 20 percent and so <laughs> yeah. one of the there is a variation there. Yeah. there is a variation but you know even in the dairy industry you know rusty burgett the nsip executive director uh his wife is a professor of um uh, dairy cattle um there at iowa state and my understanding is is even in the dairy industry they're they're running about 15 percent error rates uh, on parentage and it's just of course in the dairy industry you know there's a chance of error uh handling semen tubes uh, straws um in my personal experience here at home uh, there's a chance that when i'm sorting my ewes i open the wrong gate by accident I have an example where that happens. And so, um, you know, we just have to give everyone a little bit of grace and, and learn and try to improve going forward. But that gets back to the point that Dr. Lewis was talking about. At least now we can get correct parentage, uh, whereas before we were assuming it was correct. And then the second part is uh, genetic conditions. And we can get reports back from uh, for parentage or um, for scrapie. Uh, like codon 171, 136. Um, we're still working on a couple to refine the reporting, but basically we're getting myostatin uh, conditions back, uh, TMEM 151, which is the OPP resistance or susceptibility uh, gene, and um, uh, skips me, but I think there's an, uh, another one that we can we can get but so anyway you're you're getting genetic conditions you're getting parentage and then you're also getting uh, your report back that has your genomically enhanced ebbs on it okay great so you're getting quite a bit uh, of information really and that's that's really great to hear uh so th you know there's excitement about this and we're gonna get, i'm gonna ask you here in just a second how it's been going with katahdin producers but uh just while we're on the topic i want to ask you dr lewis you know there's all these things that genomics and, and GEBVs can tell us. What can't they tell us? Is there a limitation to this technology? You know, earlier you discussed management and environment. Is that still still important when we talk about adding this DNA information in? It, it is, Jake. Let me, let me take one step back, though, because uh, Lynn raised a really important point that I want to, to build on. You know, the... This technology is not inexpensive when we think about the value of, a, of an individual lamb. So 30 bucks a, a animal in order to do this. In my view, in my view, the way we can make it most cost effective is that we are getting more than one thing out of it. So we are getting genomic hands, breeding values, we're getting pedigree verification, and we're getting genetic conditions. If a producer steps out and goes to a lab to do those things individually, mm -hmm. that price adds up pretty quick. And so where this becomes truly cost effective is with tools where we can do lots of stuff, if I may, using very scientific terminology, to uh, with a single product. And in the work that we've been trying to do is to try to get companies to provide these products and there's many out there that are available to use where we might be able to do more than one thing. Otherwise, the whole cost effective of moving to genomic enhanced breeding value really becomes challenging for, for our sheep industry. Okay. But, but there are indeed things that they don't do, right? What genomic enhanced breeding values don't do is provide us an alternative 
to not recording our animals. There's been a lot of uh, rhetoric, I suppose, is the right choice that, you know, can we stop recording things because we now have genomic information? There are some conditions where we can. Uh, Lynn made reference to them. You know, we have good genetic markers for scrapie susceptibility. We have good genetic markers for myostatin and calipige and the barula gene. So we have a marker and we can, we can use them. But for most of the other traits, there's a whole bunch of markers that we're gonna to need to combine together, each with small individual impact to use that genomic information. And we can't do that if we don't link it to true performance records on the ground. So genomic enhanced EVVs are not a way to avoid performance recording. Sure. In fact, it probably requires more performance recording to be most, most effective. Also, just to be clear, just like any tool, there's error. Um, there are times you know, we need to collect a DNA sample. It needs to link up with the right animal. When it goes to the lab, do the best job in the world to be accurate in its evaluation, uh, but there are errors that will come in at that point in time. So we need to be very conscious that it's not a perfect tool even when we get a genotype. So we need to be persistent in validating that it really works. The validation is another important uh, part of this, particularly when we're trying to link genes or markers to particular effects. Those links may not be the same for all breeds. And so we need to go through the trouble of validating these genetic markers in all of our breeds to be able to use them reliably. Right. So it's not a perfect tool. It's a super tool, but we need to use it like any tool in a toolkit in an appropriate way. Okay. So you're alluding to some of the, the challenges to generating EBVs, and that's what I want to ask you about next. And, and so, Lynn, I'll, I'll start with you here. But really, the reason why we got together and, and are recording this podcast right now is because GEBVs have become available for Katahdins. But why aren't they available for all breeds at this point? And, you know, what has the Katahdin breed gone through to make this available to their producers? And, and I guess, that will answer the question, you know, what are the challenges for generating these breeding values? So Lynn, if you would, if you would start in that, please. Well, I'll start by um, echoing what Dr. Lewis said that um, it is somewhat breed specific and the validation has to be done on a breed by breed basis. And then, um, so why are Katahdin's number one? Well, Thank, thankfully, because of a group of about half a dozen or eight researchers, including Dr. Lewis and, and led by the primary investigator, uh, Dr. Joan Burke um, at the USDA uh, Research Center down at um, Boonville, Arkansas, there was a grant, uh, a very large grant from USDA to study um, genetic markers in Katahdin's as it related to parasite resistance. And then thankfully, because this is a technology that keeps getting cheaper, um, the, they had the ability to take uh, this four, three years worth of lamb data. Uh, and I, I should say also that 
You know, these researchers were able to convince about 21 Katahdin breeders to collect a tremendous amount of data on farm that they would not have normally collected, uh, including blood cards and tubes of blood and um, a, just a lot of record keeping. And so because of all of that massive data collection on approximately 6,000 lambs, um, they were able to identify over five or close to 5,000 lambs over those three years that had good genetic data, good um, record keeping data from the producers uh, that they could use then to analyze and go a step further than they had ever planned to with the original grant. And that is to the, the development of these GEBVs. So, now, I guess the next question would be, when will the other breeds get it? Yep. And I'll let Dr. Lewis talk about the new grant that will hopefully uh, help move this process forward for other breeds in the U.S. sheep industry. Yeah, Dr. Lewis, go ahead and, and expand on that. And then I'm going to come back to Lynn for a, another question. He's not going to get off quite <laughs> easy. Yes, we, we're very fortunate, and I truly thank the sheep industry because when we get when we receive comments on our proposal again to uh, the USDA as part of a funding opportunity, they commented how taken they were with the degree of support from the sheep industry in our adventure, and that was seen to be very positive. But basically, we uh, put together a proposal building on what we were able to achieve in Katahdin to uh, seek funding to look at a, a larger array of traits. We call them robustness and climatic resilience traits. And working with not only Katahdin, but working with the other uh, three breed types in our industry. So the, the Western Range, our example is the Rambouillet, the Terminal Sire, we're working with Suffolk specifically, and what we call the semi-prolific or maternal, and we're working with polypay, in addition to hair sheep with Katahdin, we were able to generate enough funds in combination between industry and this grant to be able to genotype a substantial number of animals in these other breeds. Now, in order to estimate genomic enhanced breeding, breeding values reasonably well, you need to have what is called a reference population. And that needs to be on uh, enough animals that have the genomic data, but they have performance data to go along with it. Sure. And it looks like in most of our breeds, kind of the minimum cutoff is going to be about 3,000 animals maybe larger in some breeds that are genetically more diverse. Uh, in the Katahdin, as Lynn said, we were able to start out with 5,000, which is really quite, quite a nice kickoff point. But in the grant, give the complementary funding of industry uh, and what we were able to uh, obtain through USDA NEFA, we're gonna be able to generate more than 3,000 animals in each of those three additional breeds to allow us to uh, begin to offer genomic enhanced breeding values. Project is over a three, four year time frame, So it will be a few years down the road before we get enough of the data collected, but I'm really excited to say that 
Hopefully this technology will become available in all of our breed types in the relatively near future. Okay. Are you, are you still seeking flocks the, to participate in those reference populations? Absolutely. And in fact, we've just recently released the set of guidelines, if I may, on what we are going to be looking for from those participating to collect. Again, as Lynn said, we were able to convince 21 producers in the Katahdin project to collect some things that weren't their norm. We're probably even asking more of those participating in the new project because in order to get a hold of robustness and climatic resilience, we need to measure some more things. Lamb survival, ewe longevity, udder health, the ability in the Katahdin as, a, as the, the illustration for an animal to shed its wool across the season. So we are seeking some additional measurements to be able to look at fitness, robustness, and the ability of an animal to be resilient to Okay. That's really interesting and, and really looking forward to uh, watching that project play out. Now, uh, Lynn, I, to, to go back to you on, on the Katahdin, uh, you know, the rollout of GEBVs and, and Katahdins uh, just happened in the last couple of months. Uh, what has been the response so far from, from producers and, and, and the feedback that you've received and, and how do you see the next, you know, maybe year uh, kind of playing, put, coming together? Yeah, it's uh, it's been an exciting um, a year, and I really have to give a shout out to Tom Hodgman. Uh, he's done a lot of the work uh, within the breed um, and working well with Rusty to to make sure this all happens. But yeah, the the official rollout was October the first, and um, and so um, you know before that, Tom and I were trying to be cautious to not oversell it because we knew there were probably going to be some hiccups. And um, we actually did some trial runs with some of uh, some sets of TSUs. Um, and, you know, with anything new, there's, there's been some, a few hiccups. Uh, the results have come back a little slower at times than we wanted, um, but we're working through that. And, um, everyone is has been giving everyone a lot of grace i think and i i just want to say thanks to all the katahdin producers that are participating but when we were first trying to budget you know how many tsus would we even collect this first year i mean we were talking um you know maybe at 1200 1500 we were hoping and and we're we're approaching 2500 or or something wow. like that now that's in great first year and so People are, are excited. They realize there's value to, like Dr. Lewis said, you know, we're, it's not just genomically enhanced EBVs. That TSU is giving you on uh, genetic conditions. It's giving you parentage. And then it's also feeding into uh, the GEBV, which increases the accuracy uh, of the data that we're, that we're, um, we're making selection decisions on. So it's, um, um, I, I just think um, based upon, you know, we, we've kind of joked a little bit that, you know, the Katahdins are, you know, we're, we're, we're blazing the trail, but it's going to be so much easier now for the other breeds to come along. A lot of the decisions that we guessed at, uh, we now have some history that the other breeds can look at and say, you know, we're, this is, you know, let's go down this path or whatever. And, and, um, 
So uh, I think it's an, it's an exciting time for the sheep industry, for people that are interested in, you know, improving their flocks genetically. And I, I guess one other thing, Jake, I just want to say, whether it's Katahdin's or any breed that has this technology, um, you know, the, I think this is probably technology for the seed stock producer. And I would hope that the commercial producers will would seek out um, purebred breeders or seed stock producers that are using this technology that would buy them their replacement breeding stock or their 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 herd sire, new herd sires using this technology. Uh, I don't think we're saying that the entire industry needs to do this from day one. If you're if you're a commercial producer, um, the the payoff's going to be harder than it would be if you were a purebred producer. Now, perhaps at some point in time because of technology changes and pricing point changes you know it, it may be more advantageous for everyone to be involved but for right now i'm hoping the commercial industry sees the value that the purebred industry is doing and supports us by buying these animals with these enhanced ebvs so i think this this discussion we're having today goes a long way to building that trust even in somebody that's not going to use this technology specifically, but if they know more about GEBVs, uh, like I said, they're going to hopefully be more trusting in uh, purchasing animals that have that information. So that's a really great point, Lynn. Uh, something else you said kind of sparked a thought in my mind. Uh, and maybe, uh, Dr. Lewis, I'm going to ask for a, a response from you on this one. Uh, GEBVs have been a, a thing in beef cattle and, and dairy cattle specifically and, and crop science and, and a bunch of other industries for quite some time. Even across seas, uh, genomically enhanced breeding values are have been adopted by other sheep industries. Uh, now, on the on the surface, they may, this may seem like the U.S. sheep industry is, is a little bit behind some of these under industries. But when we're in that position, what, what can we learn from watching these other rollouts of this type of technology and, and how can that make us make it easier for us, American sheep producers, as we start to implement this, just like Lynn mentioned, other breeds following the Katahdin kind of protocol. Thanks Jake for that. I, I like to tease my beef cattle colleagues that I'm grateful they got it wrong quite so often that <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Um, tongue in cheek. Um, sure. But indeed, we do learn from what other people have tried to do. And in terms, in terms of the technology, the computations, because a lot of the tools are now out there for us to do all the math and stats work in the background, and we can just adopt it. We don't need to develop it from scratch. That's a huge advantage to us. Right. And we're also now better able to target the animals that would be best to genotype. Historically, when this all began, and it's very understandably why, you know, those animals being genotyped tended to be those uh, males that were particularly attractive and well used. Females were kind of left off for a while. And we have learned, particularly for our maternal traits, gathering genomic information on females in our production systems is really important to do. And so we know that now. So when we start establishing genotyping strategies, clearly we still need to pick up those service sires for our flocks. Um, but we also want to include those ewes in, in the picture. 
because they're going to tell us about reproductive traits, about longevity, about all kinds of important things that these tools are going to be most effective in allowing us to evaluate. And so we've learned that from other from other industries, and we're benefiting from that because we we don't take quite as many wrong turns. Sure. Now, Lynn, what, to follow that up, what do you think the American sheep industry is is going to look like? Let's say, let's just to put a number on it, twenty five years from now, this technology is being rolling is rolling out right now. You know, Catans and and a few other breeds are uh, looking like you know in a few years they're going to start to have it available to them. What do you see? American sheep industry looking like 25 years from now, having had this in their back pocket for some time? Man, that's a couple million dollar question there, Jay. Uh, <laughs> in an ideal scenario, this is a, a chance to, to describe yeah. it how maybe you'd like to see it. I think, okay, number one, I'm a first generation shepherd and, and maybe I don't have enough background here. But so, so that's the context that I'm saying this in. But it appears to me that we've weaned 1.1 lamb per ewe for about 50 years. Mm -hmm. And I hope that we can take this technology along with some management changes and and really start cranking that up and uh, i think if the industry is going to exist in 25 years we've got to increase the number of lambs born it's it's crazy to me that we are currently importing 60 percent of all of the lamb that is consumed in this country and we're not expanding our youth flocks and we're not expanding the the number of lambs born per you. And so this is technology that can help us ramp that selection up faster because again, we can make more accurate decisions on our breeding rams and which you lambs we're saving and you know which ram lambs, you know, what are the maternal ram lambs that we're putting back into commercial flocks. Um, so that we can grow grow the size of the uh, U.S. U flock, and um, that we should be, you know, we could triple or quadruple the size of the U flock in the United States um, to supply the demand that U.S. consumers have for lamb. And so I'm I'm hopeful that this is a technology that can just help us accelerate the genetic growth of the U.S. sheep industry. Okay, great. So we're, we're approaching up on an, an hour. And so I, I'm going to have just a few more questions here to sort of wrap some things up. Uh, and this discussion has been great, first of all. And, and admittedly, this is probably one, been one of the more technical topics that we've covered here on, on the Research Update uh, podcast. Uh, and for producers that are listening, uh, this is a, an important question I like to ask every time. You know, what is a takeaway message, and I'm going to ask both of you to respond. What is a takeaway message that you would like to leave our listeners with about this technology and how it applies to, to sheep production? Uh, Dr. Lewis, we'll start with you. For me, the, the important tech take-home message is it's just another tool for us to do what we've been doing better. Mm -hmm. And so the things that we've done historically are not wrong. Um, They've been very effective when they've been applied well. What this tool allows us to do is just that job better. And that's important because as 
Lynn has said, it allows us to make more progress more quickly. And the other take home message is what this tool will allow us to do is to draw in traits that are important to our flocks that we've not been able to handle very well in the past. And linking to his, uh, Lynn's comment about, you know, commercial producers benefiting from this, that's going to be a huge benefit. If we can improve the utter health of our ewes, if we can help ewes live longer, if we can improve well-being in a very general state, that trickles through the entire industry. Those decision-making begins at the seed stock, but by gosh, it's going to certainly help our commercial industry. And this technology allows us to get there. The, the other point to make, and I, I've said it before, and I just want to reemphasize it, we cannot stop recording. Sure. These tools do not give us an easy way out. They're in addition to what we're currently doing to be used effectively. So those are my take-home messages. Okay. Yeah, I I guess I just want to expand a little bit on what Dr. Lewis said. And, um, you know, it's it takes a lot of record keeping. It takes a lot of research to do this. Um, but it, we need young researchers. And actually, one of the things I've seen over the last four, five, six, seven years in the sheep industry is we're beginning to attract young researchers again. And well, Jake, you're one of them. And, you know, we're, we're several states have hired young new sheep extension specialists. And um, I, you know, um, there's some sharp young people uh, out at Clay Center at the uh, USDA Me Animal Research Center. And I think to some extent they realize that, you know, sheep are as an industry ad adopting these types of technologies and that, that builds excitement within the industry. And so those are the researchers that will be working with Dr. Lewis or maybe someday replacing Dr. Lewis working on these hard to measure traits uh, like he mentioned, udder quality and so or parasite resistance or uh, just overall immune uh, uh, health and function. And so these, I think this is an exciting time and this is, um, you know, we're now, this is kind of laying the groundwork so that we can accelerate uh, some of that research to help the sheep industry move forward. Great. Uh, and this is an open-ended question and that there's a lot of answers, but, you know, where can folks go to learn more if they're interested in this type of technology and how it applies to, to the sheep industry? You mentioned the NSIP website, and maybe that's a, a good resource, but you know, how, where can where can folks go to, to learn more? Lynn, we'll start with you. Well, again, I'm a little biased as chairman, but uh, I think that's a great place. There's yeah. um, under the genomic enhanced, under resources and then under genomic enhanced EBV tab, uh, there are a series of five webinars and six different articles that were put together in the past year that people can, can view. And then, you know, I, I, let's not forget that really, you know, anything, I won't say, and I should probably rephrase that, but, you know, a lot of the things that apply in the cattle industry apply here. So, you know, if people are looking at breeding strategies or whatever, um, you know, that would be uh, an, another resource. But I think it kind of goes back to perhaps each individual flock needs to figure out what they really want. Uh, because, again, 
if you're shooting in the wrong direction, this uh, technology will get you there faster. Uh, so we want to make sure we're shooting in the right direction and um, and find people that, you know, whether it's state extension specialist um, or industry, um, you know, feed reps or whatever that can that can uh, that has looked at this and can help you determine your flocks goals. And then how can we get you there, get you to where you want faster? Dr. Lewis, to kind of sum up some of your previous answers, it sounds like if particularly those producers of, of Rambouillets and, and some of the other breeds you mentioned, um, terminal breeds, maternal breeds, if they start collecting data now and uh, a whole host of information in a couple of years when these GEBVs are available, they'll be able to jump right on that train. Is, is that right? Absolutely. You know, it's, it's, it's an exciting time. Mm -hmm. And we have enthusiasm as an industry to grab a hold of these new tools and use them in an effective way. And as Lynn said, uh, as far as kind of takeaway message, there's a lot of really clever young scientists coming on board, Jake, again, you included, who are going to make a difference. And that hasn't been the case. There's a few of the older... In longer the world, if I may, folks, that are still around. But that was we, great. We, great description. We, we, we do need young, creative people with new tools coming on board. So it is an exciting time. Just to add to a couple other places where people may find information, uh, certainly through ASI, there is a, a, a now I think it's being planned to be an annual uh, edition of the news a letter or news magazine. Oh yeah, uh, that will Sheep industry news, yeah. and it's going to clearly have an emphasis on some of the genomic technology, and also the webinar series that Jay Parson oversees. There have been presentations dealing with this topic as well. So there are several sources that exist and that will evolve as we go forward with these tools. Awesome. Well, gentlemen, uh, I want to thank you again. We're about out of time. Uh, thank you again for for letting me pick your brains and, and the fast, fantastic information that you have uh, shared with our listeners today. So I really appreciate you guys coming on. Thank you. Thanks, and to you listeners, make sure and subscribe to our podcast uh, to be alerted of each new episode of ASI's Research Update. We try and reach you monthly with timely topics. And if you have enjoyed this edition or any of our previous episodes, make sure and share with your friends, your neighbors, your colleagues, and help us spread the word about the latest information covering all aspects of sheep production here in the United States. Now it's February it's cold across much of the U.S. There is never a better time to eat lamb, wear wool, and ponder just what genomic technology can do for your operation. Three of my favorite activities. Have a good day.